said it before, I'll say it again. We sing better than we live. We strive for it though, right? We will be ever, always, all for Thee when we are glorified with Thee. But we strive. Part of being all for Him is running quickly in confession when we blow it in this life. I'm going to read this this morning. I didn't preach this morning, so I think it's this morning, right? I'm going to read this evening from Romans chapter 3. It should be familiar territory to you. It's Paul's summation from Scripture of the situation of both Jew and Gentile apart from Christ. In other words, both Jew and Gentile need a Savior. What what is the result in the lives of of Jew and Gentile outside of Christ. What is the result of the fall? And that's kind of what we're going to be talking about tonight. So as Paul is summarizing the universal need for a Savior and salvation, he asks and answer a question. In verse 9 of chapter 3, he says, What then? Are we better? Not at all, for we have already charged that both Jews and Greeks are all under sin. As it is written, there is none righteous, not even one. There is none who understands. There is none who seeks for God. All have turned aside. Together they have become worthless. There is none who does good. There is not even one. Their throat is an open tomb and with their tongues they keep deceiving. The poison of asps is under their lips, whose mouth is full of cursing and bitterness. Their feet are swift to shed blood. Destruction and misery are in their paths, and the path of peace they have not known. There is no fear of God before their eyes. Let's pray. Lord, we've said it many times, but we simply want to know and embrace what your word teaches So tonight as we think about uh, what we call total depravity or utter depravity or not utter depravity but uh, radical depravity or total inability, however it's named, um, just help us to think biblically about it. Help us to see what your word teaches. Help us therefore to reject what your word doesn't teach. It's really all we're after. So Lord bless us and lead us and guide us and help us to examine these things in the light of Scripture and to land where your word lands on these doctrines. So again, bless us by your Spirit. We give you praise, honor, and glory in Jesus' name. Amen. What is our, and I prayed it, what is our overarching question as we're looking at the doctrines of grace? We've talked about the history of the doctrines of grace. We're going to begin to look at the the tulip, or T-U-L-I-P. We're going to break that down. But our, our overarching question and desire is simply, what does Scripture teach? When the Scriptures are rightly understood, when they're rightly interpreted, how do they present to us the condition of the natural man, the lost man, the person outside of Christ? What was the result of the fall on humanity? Those are the questions that we're asking. So what does Scripture teach? 
in, in, our, in our brief look at the history, and if any of you missed that, the recording is up on, on the YouTube channel. It's posted on the website, I think, so you can go back and look at that. But we saw it in the Pelagian controversy and the semi-Pelagian controversy. What, what was the result of the fall? Well, for Pelagius, there really was no effect in our lives other than his bad example. And, you know, Adam's bad example in us following him. And, yeah, Pelagius is bad example as well. For the semi-Pelagian, where there's, there's partial, there's still some room left where man can move towards God. Or is depravity total? And that would be, I think, the biblical view. I think that's the reform view. I think that's the only one that makes sense out of text like we read tonight. But uh, what I've done tonight is, is try to put as much as I'm, I can that I'm going to talk about on your handout. So we don't have to do a lot of flipping and moving. We can just, you can go back later if you want to read in context, make sure I'm doing the right thing. But as we go through the handout, the scriptures we're going to look at, and yes, there are more. Uh, and if you want more scripture references, the, uh, especially five points that, that I recommended, uh, you can get those, uh, get it there. But the, enough to show. I think we have enough before us to show that total depravity is the biblical teaching. I want to read first what we said. And when we did our um, survey of the history of things, and we saw if you weren't here for that, the reason there is a five points of Calvinism is because there was a five points of Arminianism. The Armenians put, uh, declared a protest, in the, and it was summarized in, those, in that, those five ways. And they were protesting the accepted orthodox doctrinal teaching of the church. So the, as we look at total inability or total depravity tonight, I'll, go, I'll read again that first uh, bullet point on your handout from last week where you get the five points of Arminianism the five points of Calvinism. It said this under the five points of, Mar- of Arminianism. Number one, that's the only one I'll read. Free will or human ability. Although human, the, although human nature was seriously affected by the fall, man has not been left in a state of total spiritual helplessness. Now listen, this is what the Arminian side would say. God graciously enables every sinner to repent and believe. And he does so in such a manner as not to interfere with man's freedom. Each sinner possesses a free will and his eternal destiny depends on how he uses it. So on that side, what makes the difference is man, right? How I use my ability to choose. And we'll see, we still have an ability to choose. It's just what we're talking about that makes the difference. On the, on the five points of Calvinism side, total inability or total depravity. Because of the fall, man is unable of himself to savingly believe the gospel. The sinner is dead, blind, deaf to the things of God. His heart is deceitful and desperately corrupt. His will is not free but is in bondage to his evil nature. Therefore, he, he will not indeed, he cannot choose good over evil in the spiritual realm. That's apart from grace, right? So God on that side would be the one that makes the difference. But the question is, which side most lines up with what Scripture teaches? You know? Yes, we have a free will if we rightly understand that, but are we free to choose Christ outside of God's work of grace? Can we do that? Will we do that is probably the better way to put that. But let's look at the Scriptures and see what they're 
they're going to teach us. At first, I've given you some, some definitions, so I'll read that. Um, we'll break it down. And a lot of this you have on, this you don't have, but I think, but you have the, the uh, Robert Raymond quote and following. Depravity refers to the corrupt nature inherent in humanity ever since the sin of Adam in the fall. The actions of one man directly affected the many. And I hope you remember that when we looked at Romans 5, 12 to 21. All mankind fell in Adam, who is our federal or covenant head, and inherited from him both guilt and corruption. Robert Raymond defines it this way, and this is at the top of your handout, I think. Man in his raw natural state as he comes from the womb is morally and spiritually corrupt in disposition and character. Every part of his being, his mind, his will, his emotions, his affections, his conscience, his body has been affected by sin. And this is what is meant by the doctrine of total depravity. According to Robert Raymond, according to the Reformed Church, (laughs) according to your scripture, man is not basically good. Basically good, but just does a few bad things. Everyone born after Adam's fall, sinful, corrupt, lost, bondage to sin, needing a Savior. 1689 Baptist Confession says this, By this sin, and by this sin, talking about the fall into sin in the garden, By this sin, our first parents fell from their original righteousness in communion with God. We fell in them, and through this death came upon all, and all became dead in sin and completely defiled in all the capabilities and parts of the soul and body. All became dead in sin and completely defiled in all of the capabilities and parts of the soul and body. Y'all know that original sin is not the first sin, right? The doctrine of original sin is not talking about the first sin. It's talking about the outflow of the first sin. It's the guilt and corruption that we receive from Adam because of the fall. Why, why, do, why do we use the word total? Why was the word total used in describing this doctrine? Um, And not, well, I guess not everybody uses, R.C. says radical corruption. He likes that better, which I tend to agree. Somebody like Jeff Durbin would say uh, total inability, which is a true presentation of what's being taught. But the word total is used because sin affects every facet of our nature. Let me tell you what total depravity doesn't mean. Total depravity doesn't mean that sinners are as bad as they possibly could be. It doesn't mean that sinners lack a conscience. It doesn't mean that an unbeliever can never do outwardly good deeds. It doesn't mean any of that. It means that no part of our personality is uncorrupted. The mind, the will, and the emotions, everything, everything that is us as a human being, a fallen human being, after the fall of Adam in the garden has been corrupted or affected by sin. William Shedd 
says this, total depravity means the entire absence of holiness. The entire absence of holiness, not the highest intensity of sin. Think of it this way. If I were to come up to you with with a glass filled with clear liquid and I told you, here, drink this, it is strychnine. It is poison. It's utterly poison. It's all poison. It's completely poison. It's as bad as that cup of strychnine could be, right? But what if I had a a cup of perfectly clear, pristine water? Clear, clean drinking water. And I put a spoonful of strychnine in it. Well, that'd be okay to drink, right? What does that poison do? It corrupts the entire glass. It affects the entire glass. See, it's not that it's not that utter depravity. It's not that we're as bad as we could be. But like the glass of water in which you pour a spoon of deadly poison, it infuses everything. And sin has infused everything. It's corrupted our entire nature. So here's a simple definition. I think you have this on your handout. Total depravity simply means that every part of our being is corrupted by sin. And specifically that our will, our human will, is in bondage to sin. So that in and of ourselves we will never seek or choose God. We need God's effectual grace to change our hearts and minds so that we do choose Him. We need God's effectual grace to change our hearts and minds so that we choose Him. See, we still, as, as fallen people, and we're, hopefully everybody here, is, hopefully mostly is a believer, but even as before we came to Christ, we still had the, the, the ability to choose things, Right? We made choices every day and we were responsible for all of those choices. We decided whether we wanted a red Toyota or a black Toyota or you fill in the blank. So we still walk around with the ability to choose, but we're choosing what is most in line with our nature. Like the red or the black Toyota would depend on what color you like. Right? I hate green, especially bright green or yellow. I would never choose a car that color. If you have one, I'm not insulting you, not on purpose. Anyway, it's just that we all have preferences. Well, our hearts are in slavery to sin before we come to Christ. We are dead in sin, the scripture says. We are spiritually dead. We are unresponsive to God other than to either in a, in a fancy way or a not-so-fancy way, run from Him. In a religious way or non-religious way, we tend to run for him, from Him because every part of our being has been corrupted by sin. And that definition there said that, uh, that our will, and, and again, I'll tell you, it would be a good thing to do if you want to and if you, you will, to read The Bondage of the Will by Martin Luther. Good thing to do. Our will, our human will, is in bondage to sin so that in and of ourselves we not seek or choose God because we, we are born loving sin and hating God. And that's not a feeling, right? 
Because as an unbeliever, I would have looked at, you said, you hate God. And I would have said, I would have looked inside and said, well, no, I don't hate God. I don't always choose what he wants me to do, but I don't hate him. I don't feel like I hate him. But no, when we reject his ways, we hate him. Because we choose what we love. So as an unbeliever, we love sin, so we choose it. We don't see the beauty of the kingdom of God. We don't see the beauty of the king. We don't see the need, the real crushing need of his salvation until we're born again. What did Jesus say? Remember, I brought this up before. Unless you are born again, you cannot even perceive, see, I mean, perceive the kingdom of God. You won't choose it. If you're a natural person, uh, you know, you'll, you'll think the gospel is foolishness. How do you know that you think it is foolishness? Not because you don't feel like it's foolishness, but you haven't chosen it as your way. Right? But boy, when Christ turned, the Spirit turns the lights on, suddenly you see the sin. You're grieved by your sin. You begin to hate your sin so that with grief and hatred of it, as Corey preached this morning, you turn and receive salvation. Sin has infected every part, corrupted every part of our being, like the poison in the water. It's all been corrupted, our mind, will, and emotions, so that apart from the God's effectual grace to change our hearts and minds. We will not, but we don't want to. We won't choose Him. What did, the, what did the Scripture say that I read earlier? None seek for God. That's Romans 3.11. And we might come across that again in a minute, but none is not almost none. <laughs> Apart from God's work, none truly seek the true and living God. A lot claim to. Again, so what is our basic question? Is this true? Is man totally unable? Is he radically corrupt? Is, is total in the sense that it's infected, sin has infected the entire person? As the definition I read said, are we really dead, blind, deaf to the things of God? Is our heart really deceitful and corrupt? Is our will in bondage to sin so that we will not and therefore cannot choose the good? We're going to look at a few texts tonight. And, and of course, we're going to, we can interact, by the way, too. The only thing we ask is that if have the boldness to hold a microphone so that the people who watch the recording can actually hear the questions. Because this lapel mic picks up me and almost nothing else. So if it, raise your hand. We'll get a mic to you. There's two up here. I could send, send them in two different directions if you have a, if you have a question or a comment. But uh, do you at least understand the definition of total depravity? Anybody need it repeated? Anybody need to talk to it? We'll, 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 we'll review. But our basic question is, what does the Bible teach? No matter how I feel about it, no matter whether I think it makes sense, no matter how it lines up or doesn't line up with my preferences, I need to be willing to brush all of that aside, pray to God, show me the way, show me what your word teaches. And like Acts 13, 48 radically transformed my world, He'll do the same for you. 
with His Word. Does the Scripture teach that total depravity is true? Well, let's look at a few texts. Genesis 6, 5. After the fall, before the flood, says this, The Lord saw that the wickedness of man was great on the earth, comma, apposition, and that every intent... Now look at this. This is God's Word. Look at any translation you want to. Every intent of the thoughts of his heart was only evil continually. That was God's diagnosis of humankind. Every intent of the thoughts of their heart was only evil continually. And you think about it. Think about being a lost person. And think about being out there in the world and and doing your thing. And think about the things that you desire and do as a lost person. Is the number one reason you desire them and do them is because you love God and seek His glory above everything else. See, we fail that first test, so nothing we do can be a good work in God's eyes. Because it has to flow from a love of God and a desire to glorify Him before it flows to anything else. My highest desire is to be to glorify Him. And, and it, I, I'll just confess my own sin. As an unbeliever, I never thought about that. I never even heard that or heard about that. I didn't care about that. Sure, I would help my neighbor cut his grass or whatever, but I probably had an investment in that. Or just I wanted to be thought of as good. This is my good deed for the day before I go wreck the world that night. And God says that the reason He brought the judgment of the flood was because of the wickedness and the earth was filled with violence. Every intent of the thoughts of man's heart was only evil continually. The only difference between Noah and the rest of them is that Noah found grace. Not that he was looking for it. God's grace rested upon Noah and his family. I would underline that. Every intent of the thoughts of his heart was only evil continually. Let the word recalibrate how we think. Take notes. Y'all know I told you the elect take notes, right? Somebody held up a pen. Yeah. Check. Look at the next one. We're just going to do a few in the Old Testament. We'll do more in the New Testament. And obviously there are more than this, but I just wanted you to see the striking, uh, a few striking examples. Jeremiah 13, 23. Can the Ethiopian change his skin or the leopard his spots? What's the answer to that? Then you also can do good who are accustomed to doing evil. So if those things can happen, and they can't, then you who are accustomed to doing evil can do good. Now remember, this is a lost person. This is apart from grace. Jeremiah 17.9. We all have this memorized. Are we all familiar with it? If we're not, we should be. That way when people give you the Jiminy Cricket theology, just follow your heart, you'll go, nope, that's dumb, not doing that. The heart 
is deceitful a little bit. Check that out. Check out those words. The heart is deceitful above all things. Will my heart lie to me? Oh, you better believe it. If I want something, I can make it a need in a heartbeat. The heart is deceitful above all things and desperately sick. Who can understand it? Sick, deceitful, hearts. And people, remember, everyone has gone their own way. We, like sheep, have all gone their own way. And we line things up so that it supports us going our own way. We'll even try to sort of make God rubber stamp that sometimes. Lord, I'll follow you and believe you if you'll just give me. Some of those drunk tank confessions. Lord, if you'll just get me through this, I'll never do this again. Guess what you did? Before Christ and before grace, I don't know how many times I said that. All I know is the angels that were protecting me and getting me to where, getting me to his grace were probably going, here we go again. If this boy only knew. You want some other examples? Psalm 51, 5, we're all born in sin. Psalm 58, 3. Isaiah 64, 6. Y'all know what that says? All our, that's the filthy rags one. All of our righteousnesses, all of our attempts at righteousness, everything we think is righteous before we're in Christ, it's all a mass and mess of sin. It's filthy rags. So does it seem like the Old Testament would say that we still possess an ability to sort of turn to God and do the right thing. Those are just a few verses. It really doesn't. Right? If you want more verses, let me know. You want to look, I'll, I'll tell you this, and I don't think you can find this, so I don't know why you, I'm telling you about it, but this is an old book by Michael Horton called Mission Accomplished that breaks out the doctrines of grace, that gives all the scripture references, and gives quotes from the early church fathers in the back. It's called Mission Accomplished. And if you see it on a second-hand bookstore shelf or something, buy it. It's a good book. All right, let's look at the New Testament. If we're, if we're going to look at the New Testament to see if our doctrine of total depravity is true, that man... Remember Raymond's definition. Man in his raw natural state. Man in his unsaved state. Man as he comes from the womb is morally and spiritually corrupt in disposition and character. Every part of his being, his mind, his will, his emotions and affections, his conscience, his body has been affected by sin. So far it seems like the Old Testament lines up with that. Look at, look at the New Testament. And we would start by asking Jesus, hey, is this stuff true? What do you think? What is the situation of the lost person? Could you kind of nutshell this for me? Well, look at John 3, 19 and 20. This is the judgment. This is the conclusion. This is how it works out. 
The light, and that the is there in the original, the light, he light, he's the light. The light has come into the world and people loved darkness rather than light. Why? Because their works were evil. For everyone, watch this, this is Jesus, remember. Everyone who does wicked things hates the light and does not come to the light. Translate that, does not choose the light lest his work should be exposed. Everyone who does wicked things hates the light and does not come to the light, lest his work should be exposed. It said in chapter 8 of John that all those who practice sin are in bondage or slavery to sin. And the Jews really got mad about that. Because they're Abraham's seed, right? But look what Jesus says. That everyone who does wicked things, sinners, lost, hates the light, although they might go to church every once in a while and do some things that outwardly look good, and does not come to the light, will not repent and trust Christ because their deeds will be exposed. Let me do one more and I'll see if, well, we'll do two more because we've already seen one of them and then we'll see if you have any comments and we'll move forward. Romans 1.18, remember this, when we were in chapter 1, we're beginning that section to where Paul's going to show that both Gentile and Jew are lost and need a Savior, are totally depraved. Right? Summation in chapter 3. For the wrath of God is revealed from heaven against all ungodliness and of righteousness of men. Look, men in general. Look what he says. Who by their unrighteousness suppress the truth. Hold it down. Won't submit to it. Do not love it. Apart from a work of grace in, in our hearts, we would have continued to suppress the truth and justify it in all kinds of ways. When it's just really a heart that is without excuse. Remember later in chapter 1? There's evident proof of God. We have no excuse. We should repent and follow Christ. There will not be any excuse that passes the judgment bar. Apart from Christ, men suppress the truth in favor of unrighteousness and do it sometimes in very religious ways. There's a lot of church out there these days suppressing the truth in favor of wickedness. Notice I put in quotes. All right, we'll read this one more time and then we'll see if you got any comments. Romans 3, 10 to 12. As it is written, none is righteous. No, not one. Not one Jew, not one Gentile. Nobody born since Adam fell is righteous. Obviously, we're excluding Christ, the Messiah who came. No one understands. No one seeks God. Yeah, but I see, I know people who are seeking God. Well, you know people who say they're truth seekers, who are really truth suppressors, who are looking for something that fits them and fits into your way. And if you do know anybody that's seeking God, it's because God has been at work in them. Because he says right here, apart from grace, in our fallen state, in our lost state, look at it again in verse 11, no one seeks 
for God. All have turned aside. Together they have become worthless. No one does good, not even one. Now let's stop for a minute. Let's go to Pelagius' camp. He says that people have the ability to seek God. Natural ability. To keep God's law, to keep it perfectly. To accept the gospel, to do all that. What does Paul say that might... Paul doesn't seem to agree with Pelagius, and we wipe him off. Church heretic. Semi-Pelagianism. Yeah, we're affected, it's bad, but we still have the ability to take the first step in seeking God. What does Paul say? Yeah, you hear that buzzing sound. No one seeks God. Remember, church found that to be heresy. And what I read in point one on the Armenian side was also found to be heresy because of things like this. God's word says nobody seeks him. No person that's dead in sins, corrupted in nature, living for self, you fill in the rest of the blank. Heart deceitful, desperately corrupt, bondage to sin, will of their own resources seek Christ. Will is in bondage to sin. Anybody want a microphone? I hate that. That'll cut out questions, and I hate that. We need one of those on a stick with somebody in the back of the room that just can kind of come hold it over your head when you... Yes? Okay. We don't, all right, so you don't have to be Mike. Now, anybody got any questions or comments? Luke's got one. Okay. Does it seem like what I'm telling you, how we define total depravity and what we're seeing in Scripture, that those two things match up? Everybody's afraid to shake their head one way or the other. Okay, let's keep moving. I think a strategic underline will help. But look at this. The natural person. Okay, let me pause. This is in 1 Corinthians 2.14. Who is the natural person? Unregenerate person. Not saved person. Lost person. Person without the spirit. Right? Natural person. Not a spiritual person. The distinction, right, in that text. The natural person does not accept the things of the Spirit of God. Did that say he does not accept most of the things of the Spirit of God? It did not say that, did it? It says that he does not... This is characteristic of the lost person, Jew or Gentile. They do not accept the things of the Spirit of God. I mean, look at the Jews and what they did to Jesus. He was the things of the Spirit of the God embodied, vocalized, in action. They only did what we would do apart from the grace of God. If we could get our hands on God, we'd kill Him. So He quit bothering us, we'd go our own way. But the Gentiles, same thing. The, person that do, the natural person does not accept the things of the Spirit of God. Why? For they are folly to Him, and He is not able to understand them because they're spiritually discerned. The things of the Spirit of God, the things of God's grace, the things of God's gospel are the work of the Spirit. They're spiritually discerned so that we move from that place of folly and rejecting them to suddenly they make sense and we pursue them. That's what the Spirit does in our hearts. See, when we're lost and then suddenly we're converted, 
in the context of the gospel, however that was getting into your life, it means the Spirit came in the effectual call of God. And you were, Jesus. remember Jesus' language, you can't see the kingdom of God unless you're born again. You were born again. Oh, suddenly you could see. And you turned and trusted. Repentance and faith are fruit of being born again, not the cause of it. Because apart, before we're born again, we can't see the kingdom of God. We can't, we can't embrace it because we can't even apprehend it. The natural person does not accept the things of the Spirit of God, except for the smart ones who are able to take the first step towards God. It's just not there. Pelagius wrong. Semi-Pelagianism wrong. I love you and maybe you embrace this right now, but the Armenian side is wrong. That's why the church said it was wrong. Remember how many times they met? Seven months. 154 sessions to examine these things to see if they matched up with Scripture. And verses like this clearly told them, this doesn't jive. This does not jive. Now watch this, the 2 Corinthians 4, 3 and 4. And even if our gospel is veiled, it is veiled to those who are perishing. Now watch this situation apart from God's grace. And listen, I know when I was pursuing my own way and when I was indulging in sin and enjoying it and going that way and thought I was having fun, I had no idea this was what was true of me. None. I had no idea Ephesians 2, 1 to 3 was true of me. I had no idea I was following the prince of the power there. Because that's just the people that dress up in black and drink blood. And no, it's not. That's a faint. That's what the evil one wants us to think. Yeah, those are the devil followers. No. Look at this. Even if our gospel is veiled, it is veiled to those who are perishing in their case. The God of this world. Who is that? The God of this world has blinded the minds of unbelievers. Is that a, all of them? Didn't say some of them. Didn't say most of them. What does that do with the minds are blinded? To keep them from seeing the light of the gospel of the glory of Christ who is the image of God. In bondage to sin, in bondage to darkness, can't see the kingdom of God, apprehend it as the kingdom of God, as something desirable and needed, focused on self and the world and indulgence. Because blinded by the God of this world. I love what Corey was talking about this morning and talking about the gates of hell. Do y'all know what gates do? Gates are not offensive weapons. Gates are not things that come after you. When they had walled cities and they closed the gates at night, why did they do that? To keep the threat out. The gospel is a threat to the kingdom of darkness. And they try to close the gates. But guess what? The gates can't hold up because Christ is busting through with the gospel to get all that are His given to Him before the foundation of the world. Delivering them from blindness and unbelief and sin. Look at Ephesians 2, 1-3. We'll stop there. This is talking to the Ephesian believers pre-Christ 
He says, and you were dead, dead, dead in the trespasses and sins. Spiritually dead. Physically alive, spiritually dead. You were dead in the trespasses and sins in which you once walked, following the course of this world, following the prince of the power of the air, the spirit that is now at work in the sons of disobedience, blinding them, keeping them blind, keeping them following their own way, keeping them following anything but Jesus. Devil don't care if we go to church. Devil goes to church. A lot of the devil's followers go to church. Dress in nice clothes. Have clean houses. Cut their neighbor's grass. He wouldn't mind if you went to church every Sunday in a church where the gospel's not preached. Be fine. Now watch. Among whom we all once lived in the passions of our flesh, carrying out the desires of the body and the mind, and were by nature children of wrath, like the rest of mankind. So that ties us right back to Genesis 6, 5, doesn't it? Right back to that text that we started with. The Lord saw that the wickedness of man was great on the earth and that every intent of his thoughts of his heart was only evil continually. We were all part of that group at one time, indulging, following the world in its course. Sons and daughters of disobedience carrying out the desires of the body and the mind, and were by nature children of wrath like the rest of mankind. But then verse 4 in Ephesians says, but we took the first step. Is that what it says? It says, but God. This is us. Period. But God. Who is rich in mercy because of the great love with which He loved us. Even though we were dead in our trespasses and sins, He made us alive together with Christ. See, the Pelagian heresy was one where Adam's sin doesn't affect us at all. It was a denial of total depravity. The semi-Pelagian heresy taught that while we are affected by Adam's sins, the effects are not total. We'll still, we're still able to turn to God. We're still able to take the first step towards Him so that He responds in our salvation. That either one of those seem to line up with Scripture. Can you show me any Scripture that, that says that? A more recent idea, prevenient grace. This is another historically recognized false teaching. In other words, the Bible doesn't teach it. It's just assumed. A grace, this is a grace, a grace that comes before saving grace. It either uh, accompanies the gospel so that everybody can respond or it's given to every single person to overcome the effects of depravity so that they can seek God and respond. The bottom line teaching, if provenient grace was true, the Bible would present us with the ability to respond to the gospel. And you've seen that the text that we've looked at tonight, and that's just a few of them, teach the opposite. Dead in trespasses and sin, blind to the gospel, can't 
believe because we won't believe. Can't even see the kingdom of God and appreciate it. Scripture seems to me to say that we are totally unable to come to Christ apart from grace. We are totally depraved, affected in every part of our nature, that we are radically corrupt because of the fall. And I just challenge you to, to examine it. You know, read, read books like, or, or look at the videos chosen by God. Read five points and look at the scripture references and read those. Search the scriptures to see which side of this ledger is falling out on the side of scripture. And when you do that, by God's grace, I think you're going to come out on the, on the, the right side of this, this discussion. Literally the right side as well as the correct side of the five points of what's called Calvinism. Because Scripture doesn't present man as able to turn in and of himself. See, this is why I've said in the past that if you, if you don't billy goat and if you don't knee jerk and if you really get what Scripture's teaching about the nature of the fallen man, the rest of these letters are just going to flow. Because it, if, if, as, if as a creature of God but in rebellion to God, if I'm in slavery to my sin so that I won't turn to God, indeed I can't even see the kingdom of God apart from being born again, then my salvation is going to have to be because somebody else made the difference, not me. And if I'm really dead in sin, God could have looked down all the tunnel of time He wanted to and I would have never budged to the gospel because I was dead in sin and choosing my own way and going my own way. See, that's bad theology. If you get total depravity, then unconditional election just flows right out of it because the condition is not conditions in me. The condition is in God. Do I understand all of it? I don't. Do I know who, every, who are all the elect? How to play all this? No, and I'm not meant to. I'm meant to be humble and trust God and rest in His grace and let Him have all the glory for my salvation and to go out into this city knowing that He's got some people out there. There's people out there that are going to hear this gospel. Why? Because the Spirit's at work and are going to turn to Christ. It's not a fool's errand. Right? And there's so many other benefits to embracing this. But if you really understand and embrace what the Word teaches, what the, historically the Reformed Church has taught, total depravity, then the rest of this list won't give you any problems. I mean, you won't automatically understand it all. But if the reason's not in me that I'm in Christ, it has to be in God. And the Bible seems to say it's not in me. Scripture seems to say that we're totally depraved outside of Christ and that this depravity is only over, overcome by God's sovereign grace, mediated through the Spirit in the work of regeneration so that no one can boast in His presence to the praise of His glorious grace. Let him who boasts, boast in the Lord because salvation is of the Lord.
Now again, I'll tell you this, these things are not given to us to make us mean or go around beating people over the head with them or make us bullies, theologically speaking, or otherwise. And we need to be patient with people and we don't go out when we're preaching the gospel in first priest election. No, we go preach the gospel, right? They're given to us that we can rest and trust them. Like, wow, amazing grace. If you did that, you will hold no good thing from me. And in fact, as, as weak and sinful, as marred and unglorified as I am, you'll still use me because this doesn't depend on me. It depends on you and you getting your grace to your people. Any thoughts or comments? Challenges? Confusion? Could put a burden on our hearts for those who know there's different churches that they wrongly taught today. Yeah. Yeah. It, it should. It should put a burden for uh, because it's putting too much weight on their shoulders. Right? Should have put a burden. This should, if we rightly understand the doctrines of grace, we'll have a burden for the lost. See, because doctrines of grace doesn't quell evangelism. This old sinful, selfish heart quells evangelism if we're not careful. Some of the greatest, you know, the, the Great Awakening happened under men like Jonathan Edwards who believed and taught this. And God poured out His extraordinary blessing on the ordinary means of grace. Nobody more Calvinistic than Paul See, I just the re, one of the reasons I said that I don't want you to trip over the terms. I don't care if you call yourself a Calvinist. I don't say if you're if you say you're Calvinist. Most of the people that come up to me and say I'm not a Calvinist, I, when I get them to explain it, I say, well, I'm not one of those either, because they're talking about hyper Calvinism. Nevertheless, the Bible. My point is, I think the Bible teaches these things. And if the Bible teaches these things, regardless of our prejudice or our past or whoever we love that doesn't believe it, if the Bible teaches it, we must embrace it. And I think the Bible teaches it. This is for your good. These are, these are spiritually sound teachings, which is for our good. That's why we will promote them. That's why we'll take the, the, the chance of offending people. This stuff offends sometimes. But we believe it to be the truth of the Word of God. I'll read you one quote out of this book from Martin Luther and I'll quit. He says this. This is Martin Luther, 1530. A man without the Spirit of God does not do evil against his will under pressure as though he were taken by the scruff of the neck and dragged into it. No, he does it spontaneously and voluntarily. On the other hand, when God works in us, the will is changed under the sweet influence of the Spirit of God. With regard to God and in all that bears on salvation or damnation, man has not free will but is captive, prisoner, and bond slave, I would say, until God sets us free. And we can look back on it and go, oh yeah, oh yeah, yeah. Oh, Cindy says that used copies of this are available on Amazon for four bucks. And don't hold it against him. Don't hold it against him that Michael Horton was so young he didn't have facial hair when he wrote this. One of those people that were brilliant from childhood, right? 
and has been greatly used. But this is just the teaching of the church in, in history on these things. Well worth $4. Comment, other comments or questions? Go home and think about it. Corey. I was just going to say, you know, one of the things with, with this doctrine, if you look as you're reading through your Bible, you know, we've said that total depravity, it, what we're talking about is it affects every faculty of our being. So we understand that in, in our physical bodies, right? We understand that our physical bodies have been affected by the fall. Why? Because we get sick, we die, all those things. But when we talk, when we talk about every faculty, we're talking about, yes, our physical body, but also our, our spirit or our heart. And so what is the heart in Scripture? Well, the heart is made up of four main things. The mind, the desires, the conscience, and your will. So four main things. So as you're reading through your Bible, look and see what it says about those four main things. You can see that the conscience has, has been defiled, Titus says. That the mind, the mind is one of the main things that you'll see over and over again, darkened in their understanding. Um, and then, and then the, the, the desires, you'll see that, that in, in Ephesians passage, chapter 2, uh, they're following the course of the world, following the, uh, the, the passions of the flesh, following yeah. their desires and yeah. thoughts, right? Yeah. So there's, this, there's this, this, this effect of the desires as well as the will, that, that decision-making capacity where you choose one thing or the other. And so you just see that, again, that it is affect every part of man, the mind, the desires, the conscience, and the will. So be looking for those things as you're reading through your, through your Bibles. Yeah. And just remember, verses like Romans 3, 9. No, none choose God. No one chooses God. No one seeks God. If He doesn't seek us first. We love Him because He... Who loved first? God did, right? Not us. See, we don't take the first. God, God's not a responder, right, in that way. He doesn't learn things. And Anyway, we, we'll get going too long. We'll keep going. But just, just think about do, the uh, total depravity. Think about these verses. Read, if you're struggling, read some of these books. Um, look at the references. Uh, again, if you haven't gone through Chosen by God, either the videos or the book, I encourage you to do that. That will help you a ton. Um, but when we come out and when we compare Scripture with Scripture, when we bring all Scripture together and every one of them is rightly interpreted, we see that these things that were summarized by the Reformed Church in Holland as a response to the protest, the things that were summarized as the response are really the actual biblical teaching side of things. Like I, Forget the word Calvinism and all that. Just ask yourself, is this what the Bible teaches? Because if this is what the Bible teaches, this is what I want to embrace. As we're going through the, the weeks or whatever, and you might have had a question you didn't want to ask in public or, or a clarification or whatever, feel free to text, call, email. After church on Sunday, when we're walking around, just ask those questions because most people don't believe it, but as your pastors, we love for you to ask us questions. We love that you're thinking about it, working on it, studying it, trying to make sure you understand it. So don't hesitate to ask questions. And let things like this teaching on total depravity just root you and ground you in God and His grace and cause you to give Him praise and honor and thanksgiving 
for delivering you from that darkened understanding and that bondage in the kingdom of darkness. He transferred us out of the kingdom of darkness or to the dominion of darkness into the kingdom of his beloved son in whom we have redemption through his blood, the forgiveness of our sins. Rest and trust in God and rest in Christ. Let's pray. Lord, this kind of doctrine humbles us. This kind of thing can be a challenge if we've never worked our way through it or heard it. But, um, Lord, again, we just say we want to believe and own and operate on the basis of what your word teaches. We were, we were dead in our trespasses and sins. We were hopeless and helpless and apart from you, it tells us in Ephesians 2. <laughs> Thank you for but God. Thank you for your grace. Thank you for your mercy. Thank you that you gave us to your Son before the foundation of the world. We don't deserve that. Thank you, Lord Jesus, for coming to save us, to live and fulfill all righteousness for us, to die to pay the penalty for our sins, to be raised for our justification and reigning for this gospel to go to the ends of the earth and for the promise that you will come again one day and when you come, we will be like you, glorified, work finished. But just continue to do that work in us that we might embrace your truth, love your truth, live in light of your truth, and as we were challenged this morning, be growing in better and better light and salt in a church-connected way as the body of Christ. Help us to make disciples who make disciples. We give you all the praise and thanks for it. In Jesus' name, amen.